This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Coming up next on Plains FM, the Shetland and Orkney Connection, brought to you by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society. Played by Shetland Band Homebrew, signal 8.30pm the last Monday each month for the Shetland and Orkney Connection, produced by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and broadcast on Plans FM 96.9, either directly in Canterbury or streaming live globally on broadband, or available for three months after the broadcast via podcast on the website www.plansfm.org.nz. Everyone and welcome to the May programme of the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Connection, which is presented by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and is promoted by Community Radio, Plains FM 96.9. This programme is broadcast at 8.30pm on the last Monday of each month and is repeated on Monday two weeks later at noon. Yeah, well, here we are, nearly halfway through the year already, with the shortest day only three weeks away. So far, our winter here in Christchurch has been fairly mild, though the saying goes that the bad weather arrives after the shortest day. The mild weather has been great as I've been able to get a lot done in the garden, and we really have had some lovely days and evenings. Mm. I see that Scotland is getting on well with the COVID-19 vaccinations and has now gone down to level one. I'm sure everyone will be pleased about that. Bet the bars are. <laughs> Interesting, though, a few people have said that now that they can go out, they, they don't want to. Yeah, because they're <laughs> yeah. so used to being yeah. at home. Mm. Orkney had a quick visit from William and Kate last week. This was their first visit, and while they were there, they officially opened the new Balfour Hospital, which replaces the old Balfour, which was opened in 1927. The new Belfort is a magnificent place and it's based on the design of the Scara Bray, the 5,000-year-old Neolithic settlement with its circular design. Have a look online as it's absolutely amazing. The new hospital has 700 rooms and is the largest construction on the island since the cathedral was completed in 1168. 
that's 853 years <laughs> ago. Quite, quite a time, isn't it? Quite a time <laughs> yeah. between big buildings. I'd mm. say, mm. yes. Yeah, well, I felt really sad when I read in the Orcadian recently that the Tomb of the Eagles was to close 70 years after it was discovered by a farmer on a clifftop in South Ronaldsea. It was one of Orkney's top archaeological sites, and on my first trip to Orkney with my husband in 1978, we visited the tomb and the small museum that was at the side of the farmer's house. As the lady of the house started telling us the story of the tomb, she handed me a skull and went on to say how that in the past the people of Orkney would put the bodies of the dead outside on, on a platform and let the wind, weather and birds remove the flesh. When the bodies were free of flesh, it was then that they put the bones into a tomb. She made the comment that there were not enough skulls for the number of bones in the tomb and wondered because the skulls were round and the wind in Orkney was rather strong at times, did some of the skulls get blown off the platform and roll over the cliff? She left it up to us to decide and I was still standing there holding the skull. A few years later, I visited the tomb again with my daughter Louise and Alison, a cousin from New Zealand. To get into the tomb, you had to lie on a trolley and use a rope to pull yourself inside. My cousin was tall, and as she bent down to lie on the trolley, she smacked her head on the top of the tunnel entrance. She was lucky she didn't knock herself out, because it was a fair whack, I can tell mm, you. I have fond memories of the Tomb of the Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I visited it with my husband and. He, he doesn't like small spaces and things, and so it, it was a challenge to get to actually lie on that little trolley and <laughs> pull yourself, yourself in. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's not very big inside, it would be. No. Mm. It's, a, it's a shame that it's closing. Hopefully, perhaps um, you know, something from Orkney will take it over because they did build a big new visitor centre as well. Yeah. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We mentioned last month the puffins were returning to the islands for breeding. Did you know that puffins can live for 20 years? They usually return to the same breeding colony, sometimes nesting in old rabbit holes. They use their strong legs and feet to renovate or enlarge the burrow. They usually pair up with the same partner when they return to the colony. The brightly coloured bill is used in courtship displays and to drive off rival puffins. They're very territorial, defending their burrows and mates in fierce fights. As the season progresses, a single egg is laid and incubated underground. In Britain, the majority breed in Scotland, with the largest colony being on the islands of St Kilda. The largest puffin colonies in Shetland are on Fair Isle, Fula and Hermanus. A site at Sumberg Head is easily accessible and is a favourite spot with locals and visitors to watch the birds. Yes. Now, what I'd like to know is, though, <clears throat> how do puffins and penguins recognise their mates when they all look the same? Mm. But like, do they look the same? Well, <laughs> perhaps they must smell be, differently. Perhaps I don't know, but it's always <laughs> it always amazes me that how they know. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Shetland is on TV again. Ben Fogle, TV presenter and adventurer, will be filming in Shetland this month for his new BBC programme, Sacred Islands. He is expected to be in the islands for around six days, and will be filming in Lerwick. Oxner, Papastua, St Ninian's Isle, Yell and Unst. Ben said he was still fascinated by Scottish islands and described it as his dream series. 
wonder if it'll ever come out here. We'll have to keep an eye out for that. Mm. Yes, stoats have been a bit of a problem in Orkney, and we have talked about it before. They think they arrived about 2010, and in the last few years they have had a trapping campaign to try and eradicate them with moderate success. People got a bit upset when one or two cats were caught in the traps, so the design was altered to stop this happening again. In 2018, Macca, a fox terrier, arrived in Orkney from New Zealand and spent several months helping the eradication effort. Stoats threatened vole, hen harrier, short-eared owls and other ground-nesting birds such as red-throated divers, arctic tern and curlew. Recent arrivals in the island are three stoat-detecting dogs, Scott, Spud and Thorn. These dogs don't actually catch the stoat, but just indicate that stoats sent to their handlers, then traps can be set. Mm. We found this interesting advert in the Orcadian from 100 years ago. The Australian government wishes to get in touch with young men willing to take employment on the land. It is announced that persons willing to undertake such work should send their names and addresses with particulars of previous experience, if any, to the nearest employment exchange of the Ministry of Labour. I wonder if they had many takers. Yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting <laughs> to know, wouldn't yeah. it? it? would. Shetland is a seafaring nation, and the sea has claimed many unfortunate souls, and they're not always mysterious. All of us are familiar with fishing disasters, such as the bad day in 1832, when 31 boats and 105 men were lost, and the Delting disaster in 1900, when four boats and 22 men were lost. It's not just the loss of the men's lives that is the tragedy, it's also the women and children who are left with no husband or father, and most important, no financial support. Sometimes life has small personal disasters in store for us all. Mm. Such was the fate of the man who put in the two posts connecting what was once a cradle or basket between Nos and Bresse, plunging to his death on the descent after his success. This is a fate shared by those who engaged in fowling, the scaling of sea cliffs for the taking of young seafowl. Some of them plunged to their deaths. There is the story related to us by Sir Walter Scott of a boy of 14 who fell from a cliff while his mother was a short distance away working at the Peats. Few, however, are as tragically interesting as the fate of Margaret Wilson. It seems she slipped into the water whilst she and her betrothed, Andrew Gardner, were at the banks. The wind catching her petticoats, she sailed away never to be seen again as poor Andrew watched helplessly on. A bit tough, wasn't it? Mm. I've heard some some very tragic stories from Orkney of people being caught by the wind on mm. cliff edges mm. and over they go. Mm. Oh yeah, I can mm. imagine. Yeah. Oh well, yes, it could I mean, easily become airborne. Some of those yes. cliffs are pretty high. Mm. Yeah. More often than not, the sea claimed its victims in these ways and by ones and twos. People moving across a vow in their small boat, fishing close to the shore, or on their way from one place to another. A prime example is the emptying of Papa Isle late in the 19th century, where the residents of the only two crofts had to move to Borough and Scalloway after three of the men were capsized by a wave and drowned while collecting driftwood. Gee, we're cheerful today, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
goodness. Well, you know, life in the sea was tough and there was always deaths. You know, yeah, it was just journey. part of life. It's mm. still happening, isn't it? It is, yeah. Mm. In Rousey, in early June, they're having a class in dry stone dike building. I'd really like to have been able to attend the class as I find the dikes really interesting with the wildlife that live in them and plants that grow on them. They also look so good snaking across the countryside. They do, don't yes. they? <laughs> so, yes, dry stone walls. Mm. Mm. They're yeah, everywhere, aren't they? Yeah, they're lovely. Yes. Right. Now, last summer they discovered what they think is the long-lost capital of Shetland. And recently, volunteers and experts gathered at Millbrae, Scalloway, to start excavating the site. The two-week dig, costing nearly £20,000, has been led by the Orkney Research Centre for Archaeology and comes after the surprise discovery of human remains and bronze, Pictish, Norse and Iron Age artefacts. These were found when the foundations for a shed were being dug. Money for the dig was raised via Just Giving page and will pay for machinery, archaeology site management and post-dig paperwork and analysis. Oh, that'll be one to watch, won't it? Mm, mm. A call for volunteers on the Scaleway Facebook page was so overwhelming the organisers had to put out a notice just a day later informing would-be time teamers that places were full. We had to limit the number of volunteers to 40 because of COVID-19 and social distancing. It's actually quite hard work. Trenches have been dug, first mechanically and then by hand, and some more artefacts have been found. If you would like more information on how the dig is progressing, go to the Scaleway Facebook page. That's S-K-A-I-L-W-A-Y on Facebook. I'll be doing that. Yeah, I've had a look. It's quite interesting. They've found quite a bit more stuff too, yeah. Mm. Yes. Former Northern Isles MP Jim Wallace has officially taken up the role of moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Now Lord Wallace of Tankerness, he said he was humbled and honoured to have become the Kirk's ambassador at home and abroad. Lord Wallace is the second elder in modern times to take up the 12-month role and said he would speak out on issues important to the church and its missions. He was inducted into the role at the Assembly Hall in Edinburgh early this month in front of his wife of 38 years, Rosie their daughter Helen and his brother Neil, who were accompanied by their spouses. Prince William, who was representing his grandmother the Queen as Lord High Commissioner, <laughs> and First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, MSP, were also present. Lord Wallace succeeded Joe Grimmond as Liberal MP for Orkney and Shetland in 1983. He served until 2001. He was Deputy First Minister until 2005 and also stood in as First Minister for short periods following the death of Donald Dewar and the resignation of Henry McLeish. He stood down as an MSP in 2007 and was appointed to the House of Lords later that year. Mm. Lord Wallace, a member of St Magnus Cathedral in Kirkwall, said... I thank you most warmly and sincerely for the honour of electing me as moderator of this General Assembly. 
I stand before you today feeling both humbled and honoured, and I should add, with feelings of excitement and trepidation. And perhaps I'm going to do some name dropping. In 1998, my daughter Louise worked as home help for the Wallaces for seven months, and I met Jim and Rosie then, a lovely couple. They came out to New Zealand for Christmas in 1998 and spent several nights with us. Louise and I were lucky enough to be invited to their daughter Helen's wedding, which was a great thrill to be able to attend a wedding in the lovely setting of Kirkworth Cathedral. And the bride looked beautiful. She really did. She had a beautiful frock and she looked absolutely gorgeous. It was a lovely wedding. What time of year was the wedding? Pass. (laughs) What was the weather like? No, it was was good actually, yeah. Um, Oh, I think it would be sort of in the autumn time. I just can't remember now. Yeah. It's a beautiful setting whenever, though, isn't mm. it? Mm. But to be in the cathedral, <clears throat> you know, for a wedding, it was lovely, yeah. Mm. Right. You have to wonder what was going on in the minds of the idiots who turned road signs 45 degrees so they were facing away from the oncoming traffic on the road between Kirkwall and Ham. A dangerous thing to do, and it could have had nasty consequences. Yeah, you do wonder, don't you? Shetland people have been warned by the police to look out for counterfeit banknotes. They have been asked to check watermarks and serial numbers, also the wording and spelling mistakes. Yes, we had to laugh at the smell at spelling mistakes. <laughs> Going to be counterfeit, you'd make sure the spelling was right, wouldn't you? I think so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. This was an interesting article written by Blair Bruce, Shetland Archive Assistants, and it's called Discovering the Mathewsons. My latest work assignment in the Shetland Archives concerns 12 boxes of unsorted papers, principally correspondence between members of a dispersed extended Mathewson family between the 1850s and the 1870s. The head of the family was Andrew Dishington Mathewson, probably one of the best-known early 19th-century Shetland teachers. Tutored by his aunt Dorothy Fordyce in Fettler, he and his wife Barbara Robinson had a family of 12 children. Two died in infancy, one in his teens, two in their 20s, three in 1880, aged 32 and 40, and three survived their parents, Andrew Junior, 68, Barbara, 75, and Lawrence, 85. The family lived at Awick at the schoolhouse there. Their lives were evoked in this collection of papers and correspondence which spans 120 years, 1813 to 1933. Andrew Dishington Mathewson was employed as a teacher, as registrar in East Yale, as a land surveyor for landowners across Shetland. His income, together with the returns from his tenanted land, maintained his family. It was an economically precarious existence from the 1830s to the 1850s. Andrew's children, educated and resourceful, were not particularly advantaged in the social hierarchy. They made livings as clerks and in public and domestic service. Their letters, frequently weekly, illuminate the lives of their family and their contemporaries in and away from Shetland. Lawrence left Shetland in the 1850s, a mariner, landing at the gold diggings in Victoria, Australia, married a Shetland wife in May 1866 in Otago, New Zealand, and maintained a stream of letters for over 60 years. Lawrence never returned to Shetland. The three closest correspondents, Arthur, Margaret and Walter, were also victims of tuberculosis, 
which discouraged traditional Shetland livelihoods. All three left Shetland for improving climes. Seven of the siblings left Shetland for periods. Lawrence, Andrew Jr, Arthur and Walter had work associated with seafaring. Andrew Jr and Lawrence, both at sea, travelled as far as Australia. Walter joined the Northern Lighthouse Board as lightkeeper in Skerries, Sander, Devar and the Calf of Man. Arthur travelled to Greenland to the consternation of his family and ultimately worked as shipping clerk for the company serving Shetland, beginning on board a steamer, finally at their Granton offices. His lung condition curtailed his working life. Hmm. Andrew Jr. remained in Yell, but he travelled as far as Australia. He married Jane Christie, one of the domestic helpers in his father's house. Her family of five sisters, together with their widowed mother, left Shetland for Liverpool. Her brother, William Christie, a shipmaster, on routes between Liverpool and Australia, eventually settled in Australia. A sister, Jessie Christie, married a mariner from Yell in Liverpool and immigrated to Canada. Two others married Liverpool policemen, both Shetlanders. Their letters telegraphed family news to and from Shetland. It is likely that Andrew and Jane mediated between their stressed and often jealous siblings in Liverpool. That's very interesting. I have a Christie relative who was a policeman in Liverpool. Oh, um, there you are. Back in the day. Yeah. I wonder if we're related. <laughs> yes. Might take a bit of sussing out there. It yeah. might. Mm. Letters went back and forth, no matter how far the children were from home. The papers of Andrew Dishington Mathewson, Arthur and Andrew, are characterised by meticulous accounting in journals, letters and on paper scraps, both business and personal. The collection has now caught the attention of two American academics, Mary and Ken Carpenter. Mary is fascinated by the journals and letters of Margaret C. Mathewson, with her unique descriptions, a patient and survivor of pioneering Victorian surgery and medicine on her tuberculosis shoulder, which describe her treatment and recuperation. Ken is so taken by the family letters that he is editing a book of them. The wonder of this collection is its window into mm. the lives of Shetlanders over 140 years ago, as vital today as when they were written. Because I was just thinking that um, pioneering Victorian surging medicine for a tuberculous shoulder. What a dread to think, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. What an amazing family and how they did so much travelling. It was not an easy thing to do in those days and how they kept in touch with letters. It's a shame that these days people don't write letters and all the family history that would have been written in letters is never seen. And I think it's a shame. Oh, that's a good point, mm. isn't it? Can mm. it all disappear in an electronic flash? Yeah. Mm. yeah. So yeah. if you get a good email, you know, and you think, print, print it out it. and save it. Yeah, because mm. it is part of history, yeah. That's right. Right, the music today we've got to finish off with is called Barren Rocks from the CD Ben the Hoose. Kenny Rich on fiddle and Bob Neal on guitar. Well, it's that time again when we've come to the end of our programme. We'll be back again next month with more news and views from Orkney and Shetland. Until then, keep safe. Bye for now. Cheerio. Bye. Bye.